Hey everyone, it's that guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to that podcast in Hutch. For this week's episode, I'm going to do something a little bit different and something I haven't really done before, um, but the timing seems right and uh, the circumstances are right, so I think it's a, a, a good chance to give this a shot. On Monday evening, I had Chris Courtright come into Hutchinson uh, and give a presentation on kind of the history of tax policy and and uh, some information about what's what's been the landscape of tax policy over the last 35 years. And some of you may remember, Chris, I had him on an earlier episode where we kind of had a similar discussion. But this, he came in and gave a, a, a very, about an hour long presentation that, that I think everybody in the room liked. We had a pretty good crowd that night. And I think the people there uh, walked away with a lot more knowledge and information about the history of taxes in Kansas than they had before. So anyway, we uh, we recorded all of that. I, ha- I had a friend record the audio, and I recorded video. And I, th- I know that there were a number of people who couldn't make it that night or who could only sit in for part of the presentation. So what I'm doing is I'm going to rebroadcast the audio in the podcast, and I'll provide links for his for Chris's slideshow in the show notes. So if you're interested in looking at those and going through those, those will be available to you. I also am going to provide a link to the YouTube video. I uploaded that video uh, waiting for it to be processed now, so I hope by the time of publication that will be done. But you should be able to watch that. And uh, I think if you if you have an interest in the history of taxes, you have an interest in the hi- in the history at all, I think you'll find this fascinating. Uh, during the presentation, Chris gave some really good information about how we used to manage sales tax in the state, which I had no idea about, and it's very fascinating. He also brought in some local history about a Reno County resident who went on to become governor and then became an appellate court judge who played a very pivotal role in the Brown versus Board of Education case, and he goes through that. So I thought it was an interesting presentation and uh, one that I hope all of you will enjoy. And certainly for those who couldn't make it on Monday night, I wanted to make sure and, and get this out so that you all could listen to it as well. So coming up will be Chris's presentation from Monday night, October 17th, and I hope you all enjoy it. All right, thank everybody for coming out tonight. This is a, a pretty good crowd on a, on a Monday night, but there's usually not much going on on Monday, so it's a good deal. Um, as I said earlier, we have some coffins over here and some treats and some drinks, and don't be shy about hitting into that. The coffins kind of have a message about the theme for the night. Um, I wanted to do this event and bring in Chris Courtright because... Uh, there's been a lot of conversations, and there always is a lot of conversations about taxes and tax policy. And uh, I think sometimes the message gets a little bit muddled, and certainly in election season, it gets a little bit skewed. And uh, my feeling is that uh, we haven't had quite the authentic conversation about the history of tax policy that I'd like to see us have. Um, and traditionally, I mean, certainly I'm a representative and a Democratic representative from Hutchinson. Uh, and so my view is that the other side hasn't quite been honest about their history on tax policy. And we tend to get into this argument where these people are low-tax fans and these people are high-tax fans, and that is actually not quite the truth. And sometimes we do things that actually lead to higher taxes down the road. So 
That's why I wanted to bring Chris Courtright in. He, for 35 years, was the principal economist for the Kansas Legislative Research Department. In that role, he staffed uh, committees dealing with appropriations and taxation. So whenever there were questions about budgeting process and tax policy, Chris was staffing, he was in the room in the committee hearing staffing those meetings. He also worked in that time for that 35 years with the Consensus Revenue Estimating Group. Uh, you might hear that come out. We do estimates twice a year. Uh, to That's basically what we base the budget on. We, we do one in November, is it October and April? November and April. And that is the, those numbers, it's a really complex system. When Chris first told me about it, I was very uh, intrigued by it because we bring in a lot of people from a lot of different areas. We look at the realities that people are seeing from farming and ranching to stock trading to tax accountants, everything. And we bring all these people together and make uh, really uh, detailed estimates on what the future, what the next year of tax revenue is going to bring. And it's an estimate, and it's an estimate based on the best available information, but it is usually pretty darn accurate. And so I wanted to bring Chris in to talk about that a little bit, but, but also to talk about what's happened uh, in tax policy over the years. I'm of the mind that despite a lot of the rhetoric, rhetoric around tax policy, there have been policies put in place that have led to tax increases for most people. And I think if any of you, and I'm looking in the room, a lot of you have listened to me, um, there are big players in Topeka that during the off-season spend their time working on House and Senate leadership to tell them what they want tax policy to look like in the next year. And they're usually your biggest companies in the state. And at the end of the day, they usually get what they want. And it, even if that means your tax is going up. And I'm, I'm not going to get too far into that because Chris will do a much better job of explaining some of that history and some of what's happened. But Chris is going to give a presentation. He's got a slideshow. It's Halloween themed. We're trying to be at least somewhat fun here. Um, so he'll go through that. And uh, we'll probably looking at 45 minutes to an hour, somewhere on there. Um, I would ask everyone to hold questions until the end. We're going to have time at the end for questions. Um, but I, I want him to be able to get through this information. And if you have thoughts or notes, maybe make a note to yourself or something. At the end, we'll spend some time going through those. So I want to, I'm happy to introduce Chris Courtright and uh, have him up to talk about the, the terrifying truth about Kansas taxes. Thank you, Chris. Uh, well, th thanks for having me. Uh, Jason said he wanted uh, to, as he explained, put on a Halloween-themed event, and he was very excited about his coffins over here. So pre please get one of the souvenir coffins. One of the, one of the messages and one of the things I'm going to talk about is, in fact, buried down in those coffins with, with the candy corn. And um, as, as uh, may become apparent, I'm not just an economist and a number cruncher, but uh, one of my... Um, undergraduate majors was also in history. So I think you'll discover as time wears on, I'm a little bit of a history nerd. And I was laughing with my wife on the way over here. I got to thinking about it. I think I'm going to mention nine different Kansas governors in, in my little talk tonight. So I should have brought like a bingo card, right, for everybody. <laughs> but um, okay, so terrifying truths about Kansas taxes. What are, uh, what are some of those? Well. Um, here is a more traditional slide, and when I sometimes give other variations of this talk, I've called it Thoughts on Kansas Wild Tax Ride, right? Because I'm going to talk about uh, some of the history and 
uh, especially the last decade, it's been a wild roller coaster ride, right? Uh, also, the essential question of tax policy and uh, government spending in and out Topeka, really, let's go back to the high school civics class 101, who benefits and who, who pays? That's something to think about all the way through. Any, anytime anybody from all across the political spectrum is talking to you about tax policy, I don't care if the Republican, Democrat, Independent, think about who benefits and who pays, right? Because there has to be a public sector, it has to be funded, whose ox are we goring, and who's gonna be the, the you know, who, who's the government most, most gonna serve? That, at the end of the day, that's what public policymakers do. Um, okay, there we go, okay. Uh, let's start talking a little bit about the property tax. Um, what? My slides are, uh, okay, well, the top of the slide says, why the political focus on the property tax? That's always something people love to talk about is the property tax. And there's the three main tax sources for state and local finance are sales, income, and property. Uh, Democrats, Republicans, it doesn't matter. The first time politicians get elected, for 35 years they'd come into my office, and the very first thing they want to talk about is property tax. And, and, and why is that? Why is the property tax always get the most political focus? And I guess I've thought more about that than probably anybody you know, at least anybody in their right mind. And um, I, I think the, it, it relates to visibility and timing. If, if you are just a 35-year-old family with two kids and you're going to your kids' soccer games, right, you're paying sales income and property taxes. And sales taxes you notice certainly when you buy a car, right, or, or maybe a major purchase, and you're irritated when you go to the grocery store because, of course, we all know Kansas is one of the few states that puts the sales tax on groceries, right? But sales tax is something you pay just a little bit as you go along. So it's not, unless you really buy a car and you're irritated about the grocery thing, you don't notice it quite all that much. Income tax, if uh, you and your spouse are both wage earners and you're withholding from your paychecks at your, you know, with your office payroll manager at just about the right level, well, you're cognizant of the fact there's income taxes coming out of your check every month, and at the end of the year, on April 15th, you, you go to you know, file and reconcile your, your, your state taxes, and maybe the state owes you $300, or maybe you owe the state $300, right? But it, it's all kind of trued up at the end of the year. So as you're going along, if you're a busy you know, young family, you don't necessarily notice it, right? And if you're a busy young family, you probably don't notice the property tax all that much. You're cognizant, certainly, that it's built into your mortgage, right? And it's, your payments are made, uh, property tax payments are made out of escrow in, in, in most cases. And you, know, you get these statements once a year and you know you can appeal your value and all the rest of this. Um, but it's, it's kind of an automated kind of process. But uh, this, this gentleman here looks like a, um, I'll bet you he could have been, uh, he could have served the nation in Vietnam. I bet you he got home in 1972, and maybe he bought a house in 1972 when he got out of the Army. And he probably paid that mortgage off about 30 years later, right? And so that mortgage is paid off. Now, when that mortgage is paid off, his property taxes aren't being paid out of escrow anymore, okay? He has to pay those property taxes out on his own ticket, right? I mean, he's, it's visible and noticeable. Property tax bills in this state go out in November, okay? The first half of which is payable December 20th, Merry Christmas and thank you very much, right? Uh, so it's, it hurts. If you're a retired fixed income senior, it is you know, something you know is coming. 
that you've got to grapple with, right? And if all you've got is Social Security or something, it's, it's a, so squeaky wheels getting the grease is another issue here, right? Uh, because this gentleman has these concerns, he is more likely to show up at a Saturday morning eggs and issues coffee when his legislator goes home to, to uh, the districts every weekend, right? Legislators come back to the districts, and Jason's very good at this, come back and, and meet with people on Saturday mornings back in their districts and hear their concerns, right? Well, if you're at your kid's soccer game, maybe you can swing by and say hi to Jason, but um, this gentleman here, maybe, he, maybe his grandkids are done playing soccer, right? So bottom line is this gentleman is more likely to show up and express his concerns to Jason than the 35-year-old we were talking about earlier. Okay, I'm not saying his concerns are any more or less valid, but politicians do their best to serve their constituents. And the messages they get from their constituents, a lot of them come from folks like this who are very, very concerned about property taxes. So property taxes are always a big issue, okay? The next slide, uh, the top of it says reappraisal and classification. And I've, uh, the, the, the history I'm gonna talk about uh, here relates to what happened in the 1980s. By the mid-1980s, the state's property tax system was, was badly outdated and, and really, um, really endemically corrupt. Um, the last time values in the state had been updated was really the 1960s. Uh, as best we could tell when we started looking into this, there we go, in the, in the 1980s, uh, the, the previous statewide reappraisal where everybody got the values up to what the property was worth happened in waves between 1959 and 1972, okay? All across the state, and we, in fact, three counties were not sure they did it at all. They may not have done it since the darn 1940s, okay? So we're moving into the 80s, and um, the whole system is about to get thrown out by the courts. Okay, it's, it's gonna violate uh, uh, uniform and equal uh, and, and under the Kansas Constitution and equal protection under um, the federal Constitution because here's a pointy-headed economist term for you, coefficients of dispersion. They were in excess of 40 in many areas of the state for residential parcels. What that means is if you and your neighbor had identical houses, built the same year, same condition, the whole nine yards, odds are the county had your neighbor's house valued 40% differently than yours. That's how messed up and unfair the system was, right? So how is this a rational basis? If I'm the guy with the 40% higher taxes, I'm gonna sue, right? Well, this was gonna happen. So Kansas knew it, we, we had to um, take care of this. And so the legislature passed a um, bill in 1985. They said, okay, we can't do this anymore. The courts are gonna kill us. We're gonna make everybody get new values on. And starting 1-189, we're gonna give counties three or four years to do this. And on January 1st, 1989, everybody's gonna get the value put on their house that the county appraiser thinks it's worth. Um, and also, this is gonna cause huge tax shifts. Because these values haven't been updated since you know, 1968, uh, there's gonna be massive shifts, right? There's, we gotta worry about ag land, we got residential, we've got commercial, we've got all these things, okay. What the Kansas Constitution said was all property shall be assessed at 30% of its value. So if in 1968 they thought you had a $20,000 house, you would take 30% of that, which is, uh, what, $6,000, and the mill levy applied to that. That's the way the system was, and that 30% applied to all classes of property. But the legislature said, well, okay, statewide we don't want a huge shift onto residential, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna put in this classification amendment and give voters a chance to pass it, 
all right? And statewide in the aggregate, this is gonna minimize the shifts. We can't promise in any given county what's gonna happen, but at least statewide, we think if residential is paying X percent of the property tax base in 1988, and commercial is paying Y percent, and ag land is paying Z percent, when the new system kicks in in 1989, if voters approve this amendment, statewide, those classes of property are gonna be paying roughly the same. That's what this was designed to do, it was to be a shock absorber with all these new values that were gonna kick in in 89. Well, the voters did approve this classification amendment in 86, and it kicked in in 89. Now, what then happened, though, is even though it worked statewide, in any given county, it didn't necessarily work. There were massive tax shifts, all right? Now, when something dramatic happens in public, this is why politicians are always, you know, trying to figure out their, both parties, I'm picking on Jason and everybody else, they like the status quo, they like to think things calm, they like to be reasonable, they're reasonable people, and they don't want a lot of furor going on all the time, by and large. So, when this new system kicked in in 1989, there are some people who had huge tax cuts, and other people who had huge tax increases. Now, when something like that happens in public policy, the win there's winners and losers. The winners don't send you thank you notes, but the losers are enraged and energized at the ballot box. Okay, that's what happened. And in Kansas, you know, the press had a field day, right? Uh, oh, Kansas, the Kansas property tax revolt of 1989 makes, makes nationwide headlines. In fact, it's 30% or 40% of the people that are really, really mad. It isn't a statewide thing, but boy, they were mad, okay? And so we had this uh, property tax revolt that occurred. Um, what then happened is as a result of that, uh, this is Joan Finney, who had been the state treasurer. She effectively, in the 1990 gubernatorial, like here, here goes my bingo card with the governors, uh, Joan Finney effectively beat two incumbents in 1990. Um, she beat uh, former Governor Carlin, who was attempting a political comeback in the Democratic primary, okay? And then in the general election, she beat uh, Mike Hayden, who was the incumbent governor. He was running for re-election. You like the way I did that? It was kind of like an NCAA tournament bracket, right? Or, or, or Thunderdome, two politicians enter and only one comes out, right? Okay, um, I, heard, I heard a pollster talking one time in the mid-90s. He was with Harris or one of these pollster firms. And this guy had been doing this for 30 or 40 years. And he said, of the four most surprising electoral results in the 40 or 50 years he'd been looking at polls, the four most surprising results he had seen, two of them happened in Kansas in 1990. One of them was Joan Finney winning the primary, and the other one was Joan Finney winning the general election. You know, the, the polls, you know, and, and she, there's urban myths about how she connected with people, right, at the state fair, because she, she, she recognized their last name, that they had money in the, in the lost property fund, and she, she was a good retail politician, right, that was part of the story. But also, this property tax revolt was what led to her uh, success, because Carlin was governor in uh, 85 and 86 when the re original reappraisal law and, and these things passed, and Hayden was the governor when they were implemented in 88 and 89. So the public was mad and they blamed both Hayden and Carlin. And Joan Finney was running as a populist and sort of an outsider. And she said, look, look at what these traditional politicians in the Democratic and Republican Party have done with you. Yes, I'm technically a Democrat, but I'm kind of a different kind of Democrat. And, and so her message resonated, and she gets elected in, in 1990. Um, so what then happened is after these shock waves from reappraisal and classification, Joan Finney sweeps into office in 1990, 
and the belief was widespread that something had to be done about property taxes in Kansas. Um, the 92 school finance law um, came about because in the early 90s, uh, as, as in recent years, the school finance law is always sort of in the, in the courts, right? The, the school children of Kansas have rights in the Constitution that we need to make sure that the schools are adequately and equitably funded. Okay, right? There's two sort of standards in there. And the legislature said, okay, we need to lower property taxes, but we also need to address schools, right? We can't let Johnston County go off and have Gold Coast schools and let the kids in Western Kansas eat cake. So we, we need to equalize our spending levels per pupil and all these other kinds of nuances that are part of the school finance law. Um, but also we want to lower property taxes statewide. So clever little devils that they were, they crafted the 1992 school finance law. And this is probably the most significant piece of legislation enacted in Kansas in the second half of the last century. I mean, when they write the history books, and they probably already are, th this is number one. This was the, th th this is the fulcrum about which, you know, people use to understand everything that's happened really the last, the last 30 years. Okay, in 1991, school district general fund levies were as low as nine mills in Burlington, and we know why their levy was so low, because they have the power plant there, right? And 98 mills in Parsons. And what the new school finance law said, okay, no, 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 no more nine to 98 mills. Everybody shall levy exactly 32 mills, okay? We're gonna, besides equalizing spending levels per pupil, we're gonna equalize taxation levels. Okay, so this was a massive tax cut in some 290 of the then 304 school districts across the state. They pumped a bunch of new money in to do this, and they said everybody's gonna lower 32 mills. Uh, now how did they pay for this? How did they pay for this mill levy reduction of in some cases 60 mills? Well, uh, and, and by the way, that current school finance levy is 20 mills. They, they, in the, a new wave of legislators got elected in, in the mid-90s and they thought it's not low enough, so they kept lowering it, and currently it's at, at 20 mills, and there's a $40,000 exemption for every home from that 20 mills. Um, what they did is they said, we're gonna raise sales and income taxes to lower property taxes. Schools have to have this money. You know, we're not gonna cut the level of spending for schools. We're trying to equalize it and make sure it's adequate and, and equitable at once. But our tax policy goal is three sturdy legs to the stool. And there we go. Um, the idea is if you have a three-legged stool, it's sturdier than a one or two-legged stool, right? It's windy out here in western Kansas. And if you have a stool on your back porch, a three-legged stool is gonna, is gonna stand up in the windstorm better than a one or two-legged stool, right? That's kind of the way it works. They thought it's gonna be, uh, apply this principle to public finance, a three-legged stool. Why did they think that? Well, okay, they embraced this notion because they thought property taxes were too high. So we're gonna pay for that property tax release by raising sales and income taxes, and that'll make those legs more equal. I'll show you a graph here in a minute. But this notion that was adopted in the early 90s was embraced by politicians in both political parties really for 30 years, Republicans and Democrats alike. This was Governor Graves, who was a Republican. He was governor uh, in, uh, from in, in the 90s, and he had one of these big tax study commissions, and they said, yes, this, this balanced approach, we need to stick with it. Frankly, it will help prevent, uh, keep, keep all the rates, keep the stool balanced, keep all the rates low, don't have a lot of exemptions. He, it was one of these study commissions, and this was what they, recommended on a good tax policy. Here's a picture of the um, 
1990 Graves Tax Equity Task Force. There's Governor Graves. Uh, here I am somewhat less gray than I am now. Uh, but but there, there are some heavy hitters on here. This is former Governor Bennett, also a Republican. Uh, this gentleman here in the back, uh, Senator Phil Martin, he was a Democrat. Uh, also a former property valuation director. He was a real good guy, real funny guy, real snarky guy. He was from uh, Pittsburgh, I believe. He, one of my first years up there in the State House in the 80s, he said, young man, let me tell you something about property taxes. And he told me something and I've never forgotten it. And I, I use this thing he told me anytime I'm giving a talk. And that is property taxes are like a balloon. If you blow up a balloon and tie it off, you've got a balloon. Now, if you squeeze one side of that balloon, what happens to the other side of the balloon? It gets bigger. Things shift. That's the reality of the world and property taxes. If you want to give somebody a property tax break, you have gored somebody else's ox, okay? Because local units of government don't really set mill levies. That's a mathematical computation that's made by the county clerks and the county treasurers. If you're a cemetery district, a, a, take a simple small local unit, you have to pay somebody $10,000 to mow the lawn and put gas in his mower. That, that's your budget, right? If you're a cemetery district, you gotta pay some guy 10 grand to mow the lawn. All right, well, if the legislature comes along and takes some class of property off the tax rolls and you've been levying two mills, they set their budget at $10,000 again this summer. Well, that two mills all of a sudden is 2.5 mills this summer because the legislature took some class of property off the tax rolls. So the mill levy popped up to 2.5. They still gotta pay the guy to put gas in his mower. So the balloon got squeezed, and because somebody got a tax break, everybody else got a tax increase. That's the way property taxes work. Property taxes are the bread and butter for local units of government. They have to set their budget, they have services they have to provide, they have to fix the streets, they have to provide police and fire. They're, you know, you can, can have the conversation about how much money do they need, but they need some money, okay? And, and property taxes can be like a, a squeezed balloon. Now, here is the three legs to the stool. This was the universe in fiscal 92, which was right before the new school finance law came in. The green bar here is income and privilege taxes statewide. The orange bar is sales and use taxes, and the blue is property taxes. So if everybody's up in arms in the early 90s over property taxes, maybe justifiably so, right? And so remember I told you the policy goal of the school finance law was to raise sales and income taxes and lower property taxes. And you can see here by fiscal 98 that it had worked. All right, one more quick point I want to make. Um, why, did they, another, why did they want to do this besides providing property tax relief? Why did they like this really likes this stool approach? The reason is what happened in Texas in 86, 87. Texas, as we know, does not have an income tax. And a lot of times that'll get thrown in our face. Oh, Texas doesn't have an income tax. That's great, you know, that people like to talk about that. But the fact, so, so Texas gets all their money from a severance tax and, and sales taxes, okay? So their revenue port, they don't have as many legs to the stool, so their revenue portfolio is not as balanced and diversified as Kansas is, okay? What happened is we had a very bad regional recession in 1986-87. All three of the major sectors here in Kansas were in the dumpster at the same time. Agriculture, aviation manufacturing down around Wichita, and oil and gas. Uh, and I kid you not, oil was $9 a barrel and gas was 50 cents per MCF. It was catastrophically bad for the Kansas economy. And we had major budget cuts in 86 and 87. And, and, and 
Senators were crying on the Senate floor as they were cutting budgets that had been approved the previous year. It was a mess. As bad as we had it in Kansas, it was much, much worse in Texas. It took them longer. They had to have more cuts. It took them more years to recover because what happened in Texas, because they were not as balanced and diversified, once uh, oil rig workers start getting laid off out in West Texas, next thing you know, gleaming office buildings in Houston and Dallas are kicking tenants out, right? And nobody has any money to spend, so sales taxes are drying up. So when that contraction hit Texas, because you know, their, their revenue net was not cast so broadly, they really took it in, in, in the shorts. So that had only happened three or four years before the early 90s when we put this in. So there was a valid reason why policymakers in both parties embraced this three legs that was still in Kansas. They, they liked the idea. Um, one more thing I would mention is um, <coughs> equity. Before we start talking about what happened and why some of the thinking changed, and it's a result of the Great Recession, a couple kinds of equity, I think, are implicit in the three legs of, uh, to the stool approach. If you've got three healthy legs to your stool, um, odds are no matter who or what you are, you're paying at least one of the major tax sources, right? Those doggone college students, they're not paying as much income taxes, but at least we get them with the sales tax and the property tax on the, their 15-year-old car, right? Or, or if, if you're a manufacturing business, we're gonna give you every sales tax exemption known to man, uh, but at least if you're profitable, you're gonna pay us some income taxes, right? So no matter who or what you were, you probably had some skin in the game, right? So that was one, one uh, kind, kind of equity. Another kind of equity uh, relates to the, uh, and I don't remember if this is horizontal or vertical equity, but it's a notion of, if you have an income tax leg, that's progressive, right? Income tax uh, is a little bit more painful for the heavy hitters, right, by design. And, if, and then the property tax leg, it's, it's in the middle between progressive and regressive. It's probably modestly progressive. And then sales tax, of course, is regressive. It's considered hardest on the, on the folks least able to pay, right? Especially in states that, like Kansas, and we're gonna talk about food, don't worry, I'm gonna get there. Um, but, but yes, so you had, it, it, there's a different kind of balance. At least you've got a progressive leg, some, one in the middle, and then a regressive leg. So there are different kinds of balance concepts. All right, now, politicians embraced this for many, many years, but after the 2010 and 2012 elections, new politicians sort of came to power in Topeka and they said, no, 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 we think this three legs to the stool approach is antiquated, we don't want to do it anymore. Um, we think the Great Recession that has happened here in 2009 and 10, it's taking longer to come out of this darn thing. And this is a different animal than previous recessions. And they were right about that. It, it took longer for the nation to come out of that recession than, than previous uh, uh, downturns. And so they said, we, we've got to try something different. We've, we've, got to, we've got to have some sexy wow factor in our tax policy. We, 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 need, to, we need to have this eco-devo contest with other states to, not everybody's gonna grow their way out of this. We wanna make sure we're one of the ones that do. Okay, that was, that was their thinking. Um, now, people that didn't think that way said, well, wait a second, is this a race to the bottom here, right? Are we sure we wanna do this? And so that was the, the context that, that sort of set, set the debate uh, in 2012. Well, then in 2012, um, our former governor went on national TV and we had just passed this uh, law change and he said, all right, we're gonna have a real live experiment, right? And this is a subject of many a TV ad ever since then. And, and, and he said this, and I'll, I'll give the devil his due here, he was right. We had an experiment. The thing about experiments are, by design, you can quantify them and make observations about them. 
right? We can choose up sides and start fighting about, you know, what happened. But I, I was there in the State House. I, I lived it for a decade, okay? Uh, it was an interesting time in the public sector, to say the least. And we're going to talk about some of the roller coaster rides we went, we went on to, uh, to get through here. Well, what happened, uh, it didn't work out the way uh, he and the proponents wanted, and they would tell you that. They would tell you that for, for different reasons. Uh, it, it did not certainly work out, uh, but certainly Kansas had major budget rollouts. Here, here I am somewhat symbolically standing between the current and, and former governor telling a group of beleaguered legislators, hey kids, we've got an $800 million problem here. Now, this is 2015 or 2016. But this is the kind of thing that was going on all the time. And what had happened is the fiscal crisis became ongoing and institutionalized. It was so bad, we were cutting budgets, uh, we were doing uh, things that will raise taxes on your grandkids, okay? We were doing eat your own seed corn, penny-wise and pound foolish things, not making payments into the state pension program, taking money out of the highway program. Um, uh, every single session when the legislatures would get back to town, there would be backfilling tax increases and new round of budget cuts on the table. So they were looking at the three things, policymakers, when Jason and his uh, peers would get to town every year, they had to do the three things policymakers hated to do the most. They had to consider tax increases, not, not tax cuts, because leg legislators in both parties like to give out tax cuts. They had to consider new tax increases. They had to cut budgets, and th that was painful because you, know, you have state agencies in your districts and this kind of thing. And they had to do these smoke and mirrors, eat your own seed corn kind of budget gimmicks that were gonna make it so we have to raise taxes even more in the future. So this irritated people in both political parties as it went on for four or five or six years. Um, I will also say that there, uh, beyond the fiscal problems, there were new equity issues. One of the things that happened is, and one of the most controversial parts of the law, is the taxes were repealed altogether on non-wage business income. And when the press talks about this, they say, oh, well, that was the LLC loophole. That's very lazy and very sloppy. It wasn't just LLCs. It was all three kinds of pass-through entities. It was LLCs, which are limited liability companies, uh, subchapter S corporations and sole proprietorships. None of that income paid any taxes, nor did any other kind of income on God's green earth that you or your accountant could construe as non-wage business income. I'm talking about farm income, consulting income, royalty income. None of that paid any state income taxes. Only wage income paid income taxes, right? So as you can imagine, the fiscal note associated with this change was a little bit higher than some of the original projections once people and their accountants quickly figured out how to restructure their businesses and this kind of stuff. So uh, besides that, though, there were major rate cuts in what happened to, uh, we had, been with, had a three-bracket system. The top bracket was repealed altogether, and we collapsed things into a two-bracket system. And to help pay for this, uh, we had what was called pay-fors, uh, some, some backfilling kind of revenue enhancements that would help reduce the cost of all this. One of those is we cut the food sales tax rebate credit. Okay, Kansas, as we know, is one of the states that does put the sales tax on groceries, but it um, had a, a credit to help the folks, uh, income tax credit to pay you back, basically, some, that money. And that program was, was almost wiped out. And so the equity issue that came up, and people in both political parties talked about this, is it really fair that the veterinarian is not paying the state any income taxes, 
But the poor little gal answering the phones when the damn barking dog comes into the waiting room, she's paying income taxes, right? Doesn't look like she, she has a headache here, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, fun with cut and paste on the internet. So, so that was an equity issue that people pointed to, right? Um, okay, well, so here's, here's what happened then from 2012 to 2015. There were these backfilling tax increases that were enacted. We had this three bracket system that was in place. Uh, zero to 30,000 for married joint was three and a half percent, 30 to 60 is 6.25 in the top bracket. Everything north of 60,000 was 6.45 percent. Those had been on the books for, um, for 20 years, okay? Um, but this new, again, the top bracket was repealed. We went to a two bracket system and then it was gonna be some complicated glide path formula that never got here. Uh, but the, the, again, the rate was zero on this non-wage business income. And they had to keep enacting backfilling tax increases because this broke, all this broke the budget so bad. They raised the sales tax twice. They raised the cigarette tax. I'm not a smoker, but you know, if, if I were, I would tell you that, this, and as an economist, I will tell you that this is also considered one of the most regressive taxes, right? Um, and then they, they made the food sales tax rebate uh, non-refundable. So that, all of these changes made the whole state and local tax system that much more regressive and less progressive. Um, oh, and they kicked renters out of the homestead property tax program, uh, uh, re refund program, which was also uh, another pay for. So the three-legged stool um, notion, they demanded to do major amputation surgery on the shortest leg of the stool, the income tax leg. I don't think it worked out the way they wanted. Uh, okay, sales tax on groceries. Uh, Kansas is one of the few states that uh, does apply the full rate on groceries. We put on this refundable credit in 78. And as I said, we all but wiped it out in 2012. Um, and it's, it's been an even hotter issue ever, ever since, certainly, and it is now. What happened in 2017, this was very significant. Um, people in both political parties had enough coming to town every year, having to do the three things policymakers hated to do the most. And they passed a bill. They said, no, 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 we're going to repeal this non-wage exemption. All you, all you pass-through entity people had a four-year tax holiday. We're putting you back on the tax rolls. Uh, and we're going back to a three-bracket system, by the way. All you heavy hitters are going to have to go back to a top bracket. But these new brackets we're going to put in are still going to be lower than what was in effect for 20 years that everybody was comfortable with. Again, the old rates were 3.5, The current rates are 310, 525, and 57. They passed this and the governor vetoed it. Republicans and Democrats alike said, no, 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 we're, we really mean it this time. We're tired of the fiscal crisis having become ongoing and institutionalized. And they overrode his veto. They got 84 and 27 votes, which is hard to do. And they passed it over his veto and put this back on. Uh, and, and this has greatly stabilized the state's fiscal situation, so much so that we can now do things like talk about sales tax on food. Um, so 2016 and 2018 come along. Those results were interpreted, I think, by the pundits and the media as a rejection of the thinking behind the, the tax experiment having failed. And the lawmakers, especially enacted in 2016, were instrumental in shepherding through this veto override vote in 2017. Governor Kelly gets elected in 2018. Uh, she, she was running then as she is this year, saying, hey, that tax experiment was not a good thing. Um, stick with me, we need to restore some stability. And she's all about three legs to the stool. Um, here again was the universe in, 19, in 91. Here's after it stabilized. This was the universe in 2012 when uh, Brownback came in. And again, this was the universe, but 
and you see property taxes getting out here. You might wonder in 2012, why didn't they think, hey, why don't we raise sales and income to lower property again? But again, this was the, after, at, at the Great Recession was roiling, and, and so what they ended up doing, they decided they're going to do major amputation surgery on the shortest leg of the stool, the income tax leg. Okay, and uh, this was the universe in 2017 at the time of the veto override. Okay, you can see the income tax leg had significantly contracted, uh, and this was the universe when Governor Kelly came in. Again, a year before she came in, the, uh, the income tax had been restored to three brackets, and so things were a little bit more normal. But when she came in, she said, all right, I want another one of these big, sexy ta tax study commissions like, uh, like we had under, um, under Governor Graves, because this has been such a mess, we gotta get our head around what's the right way to do going forward. Um, so she uh, formed this council on tax reform. Their first report they put out in the fall of 2019 said, hey, we need to go back to the three legs approach. Um, at that point, food sales tax wasn't on the table. She said, let's restore the credit. Um, but then, of course, in 2020, about halfway through the legislative session, we all shut society down in the spring and summer of 2020, right? The, the darn COVID came along. And so uh, the governor that, that fall said, look, we don't know yet what we don't know. This thing is really bad. So she extended the life of tax council another year. Uh, tax council, in its second report, this was kind of cool. I, I like this. Um, some research from somebody who did this, uh, I was at a, a conference, and in the 1930s, they found out people were still freaked out by the 1919 flu pandemic. They found mental health costs associated with that, right? Now, I, I think their ability to identify mental health costs in 1930 were probably not as nuanced as they are today, right? But it, it's just remarkable that people were still freaked out a decade. I think we can all relate to that, having been through the damn pandemic ourselves, right? I've, I, certainly, I've got some mental health costs after the last couple of years. Um, but anyway, so in, in, in 2021, they, uh, they said, take things easy. And they said, the feds need to get, help give us some money like the feds were talking about. And uh, that was our second uh, report. And then um, acts the food tax. Uh, Governor Kelly announced this originally last fall. The revenue forecasts Jason mentioned were coming in higher. Um, we did get the federal funds. Our congressional delegation, uh, Sharice David said yes, give them, uh, the, the other members of our congressional delegation did not want us to get those funds. And it's a good thing we did or we probably wouldn't have been able to talk as, as aggressively about the food sales tax cuts. And as we'll see in a minute, that's been an issue since we put the tax on in 1937. Um, the tax was to kick in July 1st. The governor wanted the full 6.5% uh, gone. And of the 45 states with sales taxes, there's only seven that fully taxes groceries. Only Mississippi has a higher rate. And of course, the governor said that could save $500. And um, it didn't happen. 2022 was an election year. And um, she wanted the bill on her desk by Kansas Day, even though people said, sure, it's time we're finally, since 1937, going to get food. Instead, what happened is this, um, who doesn't love Schoolhouse Rock, right? Um, that's too simplistic. How bills really become law in the state house? Conference committees, right? And conference committees meet at two, three, four o'clock in the morning, and there's no official minutes kept. I'm not sure that there's that much accountability. But in any case, this year, the, a conference committee wrote a plan to phase in the food tax exemption by 2025. Conveniently enough, the first step in that phase in doesn't take effect till January 1st after the election. I don't know, maybe there's some election year politics going on there, 
But <laughs> history has shown that we, we certainly could have afforded the full exemption by July 1st. I'll talk to that in a minute if I get time. Here's some fun history. The first state that enacts anything that smells like a sales tax is West Virginia in 1921. Um, by 1930, 12 states, 1940, 30 states. So as you can imagine, Kansas and a lot of states in the Great Depression are faced with serious challenges because of the Great Depression. We put our sales tax on. By the way, there's still five states that don't have it. The food issue was a big issue. Even back in the 30s, some states said, we're not going to tax groceries. We know, you know, we'll tax other stuff, not groceries. So equity was, from, from the outset, people talked about sales tax on food in Kansas, okay? Um, we were still talking about it in the 70s, and in the 70s we put on this uh, credit in 1978, and the credit, the way the credit worked is if you had total income below a certain level, and at least one person in your household was above age 55, or a dependent child below age 18, or blind or otherwise disabled, if at least one person in the household was one of those four things, and your income was below a certain level, you got money back on your income taxes to acknowledge that you'd been paying sales taxes on your food. It worked pretty well. Uh, until, again, we wiped it out in 2012 to pay for the income tax cuts. Uh, and it was especially painful after we wiped it out, the backfilling tax increases kept raising the sales tax at the state level. And of course, um, local sales taxes keep going up too because people prefer local sales taxes to property taxes, right? So people will often vote yes on local sales tax issues. Okay, here is the history, um, 2%. Right now we're at six and a half percent, have been since 2015. City and county taxes started coming on in the early 1970s. Um, the uh, now, my goodness, local sales taxes, I, I have it someplace, I'll, I'll dig it up in a Q&A. There's 92 counties, 300 and some odd cities. There's all these special districts. Our local sales taxes are a terrifying crazy quilt. Uh, way, it, it's a mess, as you all know. Um, so here's our rate history. The other issue that came up in the 1930s, this is a fun little digression I get to do, because again, I'm kind of a history nerd. Besides the equity issue and sales tax on food, it was an administrative issue. How are we gonna handle collecting the tax? Okay, hey, it's 1937, so if somebody goes into the store and buys a glass bottle of milk for five cents and a loaf of bread for five cents, it's 10 cents, and the sales tax is 2%. Okay, so you owe us 0.2% tax. Now the way that works now, it rounds up or down. But in 1937, the state of Kansas is like, no, 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 if that's all you buy, we need that two-tenths of a percent sales tax, okay? So we, we can't let you walk away, we can't round down. So we're gonna issue these sales tax tokens in, in a, a tenth, uh, a mill, a tenth of a cent, and, and give these to people. A bunch of states did this. Illinois was the first state to do it, and Kansas uh, went this way in 1937 and had these damn sales tax tokens. Um, by the way, the feds told the states, we should not do this. There's that whole business in the federal constitution about the states not coining money. Remember the Articles of Confederation thing and all of that. And the feds said, hey, you guys should not be doing this. And some of the states said, nah, we don't care what the feds said. So, um, <laughs> but these tokens were wildly unpopular in Kansas. Okay, what happened is um, people would go in and you make your purchase. You have to come up with 11 cents. 
if you don't have any of those things in your pocket. And then the storekeeper would give you back eight of those damn things, and you'd put them in your pocket, and next time you come in, you'd have some. People hated these things jangling around in their pockets, as you might imagine. So it became a very controversial issue. So in 1939, Kansas became the first state to abolish it. Missouri was uh, the last state to abolish it. They went clear up in the 60s. And I, I left at my hotel room my little sample bag of sales tax tokens from other states. Uh, but Missouri's are kind of funny. You can, uh, states knew people hated these things. And so they'd put what amounted to political propaganda on here. There's stuff like for the crippled children and for the, for the six seniors and the, the stuff, it, it says that on the back of these sales tax tokens you can get. The ultimate irony is even though Kansas wiped out our sales tax token law in 1939, they still work to collect sales taxes for the state of Kansas. Why is that? Because dopey Chris Courtright goes into flea markets and buys a handful of these tokens and that purchase is subject to sales tax. So to this day, the Kansas sales tax tokens still work. Okay. <laughs> 1930, okay, here, here, here we're gonna go off on a tangent here. Okay, a man named Walter Huxman is elected governor of Kansas in 1936. The outgoing Kansas governor runs for president, uh, Governor Landon, of course, and he, uh, this is the, uh, Governor Landon gets 46% of the vote in Kansas against FDR, he doesn't even carry his own state, and he, he's moving on to get the GOP presidential nomination, and there's an, in those days, there were gubernatorial elections every two years, rather than every four years like we do it now. Then Walter Huxman gets elected uh, over a guy named Will West. And Governor Huxman is an interesting guy. By the way, he's a Reno County native. He's born in Pretty Prairie. He goes to Emporia State, KU Law, and he's actually the Hutch City Attorney for a couple, three years in, in the early uh, 20s here. And as I said, he's elected in 1936. Um, it's the Great Depression. It's a terrible time in the public sector. Kansas, by the way, had already put on an income tax. In 1933, under Alf Landon, Kansas had put on the individual income tax. It wasn't enough. The stress on the public sector was higher. We needed to do something else. Governor Huxman was not a fan of the sales tax. He was ambivalent about it at best. Um, but the challenges were there, and he, he, he wanted to find indirect taxation and not a sales tax. I, I don't know what he meant by indirect taxation exactly, but the Republican legislature nevertheless put a sales tax bill on his desk that had these sales tax tokens in it, and he signed it into law. And by the way, the money was put to good use. It went to unemployment compensation and World War I soldiers' bonuses. Significantly, part of the money was also earmarked for property tax relief. They said, we know the public hates the property tax the most, so we're putting on this controversial new sales tax. We're gonna give the money back to cities and counties and tell them to lower mill levies for property tax relief. And that was on the books from 1937 until 2002. And you'll find out what happened there if you look at one of Jason's coffins. Okay, well, <laughs> because these are so unpopular, the GOP, even though the whole sales tax was kind of their idea, they say, you know, we know people really don't like those. In fact, they started a statewide campaign. Huxman signed that bill into law. We're gonna call these little sales tax token Huxies. And we're gonna run the 1938 gubernatorial election Let's get rid of those Huxies. Let's get rid of Huxman and the Huxies, right? And, and uh, he loses. This, this message works from across the, across the aisle. And at, uh, as a good fallen soldier, I guess, in, in the Democratic Party, because he loses, uh, and he was quite an accomplished uh, lawyer, FDR appoints him to the federal bench in 1939. He goes out to the U.S. Court of Appeals, which is the level right below the Supreme Court in Denver. He has a long and distinguished per, uh, political career out there, and in fact, he got really, really famous. Uh, there was a lot in 2004 when the Brown v. Board historic site opened in Topeka. Governor Huxman got his due finally. 
um, because what happened is as the Brown v. Board case was working its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, it stopped one step before at the Court of Appeals. And the Court of Appeals can't, could not uh, overrule the, the 1896 U.S. Supreme Court case because of precedent. You can't, uh, but he knew he had to do something. So uh, the presiding judge and brilliant tactician, he, he nevertheless appended these findings of fact to his, his decision saying, nope, uh, Plessy v. Ferguson still stands up to the Supreme Court. And this one in particular, this finding of fact number eight, the, the, the premise that segregation had a detrimental impact on black children, this was a critical finding. This is the Library of Congress's words, not mine. You can find this on their website. This finding was the windfall the NAACP needed to successfully appeal the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. This was the linchpin. Okay, and Huxman himself, late in his life in an oral interview he gives in 1971, confirmed that he knew about this and he knew he was gonna to have to thread the needle with this specific and surgical ruling that would enable the US Supreme Court to overturn its precedent. He knew what he was doing. He had this uh, uh, real gift for knowing he was a brilliant man and he went on to this famous sort of career after he lost the 1938 gubernatorial election because of the damn Huxies, right? Okay, well again, in 1938, the Republican uh, nominee was a, a man named Payne Ratner. And it wasn't clear if the 1938, a lot of people voting in 38 thought if they elected the Republican, the Huxies weren't gonna go away, they thought the tax was gonna go away, right? It wasn't entirely clear exactly whether the referendum was on the Huxies or the tax itself. Either way, Mr. Ratner gets elected and uh, the 39 legislature does take away the Huxies. They said, screw it, we're going to the rounding system, right? But the tax stays on because the state still needed the money. Now, Mr. Ratner was not the first politician to uh, run an election campaign based on grievance, uh, nor to leave a potential misapprehension in voters' minds, nor will he be the last. Um, Mr. Ratner was also a lawyer, and you may not recognize him today, but you may recognize the man over there on the other side of the screen. That's Jimmy Hoffa. Well, why is Mr. Ratner on the screen with Jimmy Hoffa? Let's talk about what happened to Mr. Ratner after he left the governor's office. Uh, in the 1950s, he's hired by Jimmy Hoffa to blackmail a Kansas congressman to drop uh, a U.S. House probe into the Teamsters racketeering. Uh, later, when the, the more famous Senate committee that McClellan and Bobby Kennedy and JFK and others are mix mixed up in find out about this, that the House had dropped the probe a couple years earlier, they drag Ratner in and say, what's going on here? And they were hot about this. Bobby Kennedy writes about this in one of his books, uh, that you know, Ratner was basically a mob lawyer for uh, Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, by the way, in 1958, when, when they're calling him in, um, one of the Senate committee negotiator, or, uh, investigators goes down to Wichita and is going through Ratner's files because they've subpoenaed everything. Ratner loses it, he goes nuts. And he runs in and tells this guy that he's glad his boss's son has just been killed in an accident. Okay, not, you know, darkly, certainly not a nice statement to make. Maybe that's the way people talk when they've been hired as Jimmy Hoffa's lawyer. I don't know, but certainly it was, didn't strike me as a very, and by the way, this only came out a few years ago. This was declassified just a few years ago. It's an oral interview somebody gave that popped up at the JFK Library. Um, by the way, in the 1960s, Mr. Ratner is indicted uh, for a series of unethical legal activities 
The charges were then somewhat suddenly and mysteriously dropped. His Wikipedia page only says, well, the case was dismissed and he was declared of all charges. I don't know what's going on there, but you know, I, one can perhaps speculate. Anyway, both Mr. Ratner and his predecessor, Mr. Huxman, uh, were lawyers, governors, and they both had legal careers after they left the office. <laughs> one more distinguished than, than another, I think. Um, and I'm supposed to talk about where the bodies were buried in some of Jason's pre-event publicity. He said, we're gonna talk about where the bodies is buried, okay. Um, and there's a cool grave site, by the way, called findagrave.com. Uh, Mr. Huxman is buried in Topeka. Mr. Ratner is buried in Wichita. Jimmy Hoffa, we don't know where he's buried. <laughs> I've always liked the theory that he's under the north end zone in the Meadowlands. So that, that's where at least two of the three bodies are buried. Okay, that, enough of that. I, I gotta speed things up. All right, property taxes, again, polls have shown back as far as 1907. Property taxes, people hate the most. We've talked about timing and visibility. In 1992, residential, when we put on this new system, was 35%. It's 54% of the statewide tax base now, okay? As we all know, home values have been going up a lot, especially because of the darn pandemic and all the rest of this. Um, if schools are, oh, that means I'm supposed to hurry up and wrap up, okay. If schools are levying 43% of all property taxes, but their funding has a laying out of hands from the courts, what can we really do about it? So that's an important question, right? You can't just slash property taxes or you're gonna be back in court again getting sued by the schools. And policymakers don't understand this squeezing balloon analogy I made earlier, right? They, they, they wanna cut the property taxes of somebody but they don't understand that it's gonna shift elsewhere because there's only so much uh, you can do. Uh, property tax hikes sometime occur from the state house. Um, in 2006, the legislature took business machinery and equipment off the tax rolls and they said, we acknowledge that's gonna drive up mill levies and shift onto other classes, especially residential. We're gonna start five years worth of these slider payments to help mitigate that shift. Well, about one year into the slider payments, guess what happens? 2008, here comes the Great Recession. Legislature says, oh, sorry guys, we're broke. Locals, you're gonna have to raise levies. We're taking away the slider payments. Um, in the coffin, if you found one, LAVTRF, this is a big uh, issue around the state this year. Uh, from 1937 to 2002, part of the state sales tax money went back to cities and counties and townships and everybody else, and they rolled back their levies when they got this money. There's a formula requiring them to do it. The 9-11 recession, not the Great Recession, this is the one where the bad guys flew their airplanes into our buildings, right? And uh, we had this big recession, and they took, the legislature said, hey, we're so broke, we have to take away this money, cities and counties that you use for property tax relief since 1937. We promise it's gonna come back in a year or two once the recession is over. Okay, it's been 20 years, good times and bad. It has not come back. Uh, other things, RV taxes, boat taxes, uh, the, the, they've passed special laws lowering the taxes on those. That's great if you know an RV or a boat. If you don't, guess what happened to your mill levy on your home? Squeeze that balloon. So uh, another thing in 2014 when the state was broke because of the tax experiment, they still wanted to cut taxes. So the legislature repealed the mortgage registration tax. They came into my office and I said, it's not your money. 25, 26 of the mortgage registration tax money went to the counties. I think the state got 1 26th of it for some heritage trust fund thing or something. It was all counties money and they repealed it anyway. Guess what happened to property taxes in 2015? Okay. It, it, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's something you see, okay. Property taxes were on the back burner a little bit during this wild roller coaster ride 
tax experiment last decade. It's heating up again. What can people do? The valuation notices, of course, go out every spring. People get these things, and you guys get them in the mail, right? March and April. Where the county appraiser thinks, well, I, my house value went up 18% this year. You know, it, it's shocking, and people are upset. And then they show up and berate everybody, Jason and all of his colleagues, at the Saturday morning eggs and issues breakfast. What can we do about it? Good ideas, bad ideas. Here's a bad idea in my mind. Prop 13 valuation caps. Well, let's say property values can only go up 2% a year. Or senior citizens' property uh, taxes never go up. That's great if you're a senior citizen, like I am. Uh, but if you're not, if you're a young family and that balloon gets squeezed, again, it, it, you're shifting it onto somebody else. So uh, uh, here's an even dumber idea. Uh, legislators come into my office every year in March and they used to say, Chris, I'm tired of getting yelled at every March. Rather than doing updating the values every year, let's just do it every other year. And I said, okay, rather than 18% this year, if they come in and yell, they're going to yell at you twice as loud next year when their value has gone up 36%, right? And then you're going to come here and say make it every four years. Pretty soon, it's 1968 all over again, and we've lost the political will to maintain the system. So don't ever move away from the annual valuation. Um, that would be bad. Uh, so here's some ideas. Restoring LABTRF, homestead circuit breakers, um, expand the residential exemption. A new classification amendment is, e is even discussed to lower the residential assessment rate. Uh, the balloon has been squeezed. Residential had been paying 35, now paying 54%. Maybe commercial, maybe some of the business boys need to pick up a little bit more of the share like they had in, in other classes of property like they had in the early 90s. All we know is the property tax is becoming more and more just a tax on houses. Uh, Governor's subcommittee talked about a lot of this. As Jason said, revenue forecasting in Kansas, I'm going to make a real quick point that um, we have money right now. We have more money than we've ever had. There's reasons the revenue forecasts are always too low. The consensus group that I worked on for many, many years has not acknowledged that we're back to a three-bracket system yet. The income tax monies are always coming in. We're getting more use tax money because of a U.S. Supreme Court decision. Um, that helps us um, when you buy something on the internet, you, we can now, the state collects taxes on that. Uh, so setting all this aside, um, I will tell you that there's some slight institutional conservatism in revenue estimating. Uh, there's higher revenue elasticity because we repeat, we're back to three brackets. We've got the Wayfair decision I mentioned of the US Supreme Court and we've got federal money now. So there's money in the coffers uh, now, more so than there has been, a lot of money. Uh, we finished $900 million ahead of, la of uh, last year's estimates. Through September, we're already $237 million ahead. Uh, this is some scenario. So on the table next year, I can promise you it's going to be tax cuts. Republicans, Democrats, communists, fascists, I don't care who you are, they're talking about tax cuts in 2023. All right, so which taxes are going to be cut? and, and, and uh, which ones and how much. Um, governor and, and others, and Republicans too, were saying food tax cut accelerator. Look, we've got the money. Let's not wait till 2025. Let's go ahead and advance the full food tax cut so it kicks in next April or July. Other ways to make the sales tax less regressive. Um, diapers, feminine hygiene products, baby formula, non-prescription drugs. Kansas, like a lot of states, already exempts residential utilities from the sales tax. Uh, but, but these are on the table too. Uh, property tax package, give the darn cities and counties their LABTRF money. That's a big issue. We need to do it. I used to serve on a city council. I can promise you 
they need the money. Um, other ideas, there's a post-secondary ed tax package that would help families with some tuition tax credits and stuff. Um, the Republican gubernatorial nominee, Mr. Schmidt, is talking about a retirement income tax exemption. So there's a whole laundry list of ideas, Democrats, Republicans, about different kinds of tax cuts that are coming. Uh, which ones? All right, um, I'm wrapping up here. Just as my mouse is running out of juice, all right. Oh, oh, real quick, marijuana. Um, kind of an economic development thing. Kansas has got a lot of favorable publicity. As we know, we have sports gaming now in Kansas. I hope you didn't bet on the Chiefs game yesterday. But um, Kansas is an outlier here, right? When only four states, everything's so total. We don't have, you know, so medical is on the table. And, and, and by the way, Missouri, Arkansas, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Maryland, not exactly bright blue states, have some form of recreational on their ballot here in a few weeks. Uh, there was a, people tried to put recreational on Kansas ballot last year, but the bill didn't even get a hearing. So I've lived the last 28 years of my life in Carbondale, Kansas, just south of Topeka, a small rural community, pretty conservative, the whole nine yards. I know people in Carbondale who once a month get in their cars and drive to Colorado. They weren't doing this 10 years ago. Now, I don't ask them what's going on, but I can pretty well assume what's going on. Money is leaving Kansas, okay? It, so at, at, at what point is, is, uh, is this an issue? Medicaid expansion, of course, we're in another outlier. We need to take the fed, free federal money here like so many other states have. And by the way, property taxes, um, our failure to expand Medicaid has certainly caused higher property taxes, especially in rural counties and areas. My friend Donna Ginther from KU has done a lot of research on this. Anyway, the tax roller coaster ride continues. Thank you. I'll shut up and answer any questions you want. <laughs> well, that was, that's a lot. Um, but thanks. I, I always appreciate Chris's explanation of, uh, and this kind of deep dive into the history. And I'm not as much of a history geek as Chris, but, but I do enjoy history, so I always like hearing this. Um, anybody have any questions? Thank you. Hello? You're on. Is this on? Okay. Um, so you touched on at the very end, which was the Medicaid expansion. I was wondering how much of the overall budget would Medicaid expansion help at this point? Ooh, a complicated question. I'm going to let you feel that one. The question is how much of the overall budget? Um, I don't know how to explain that exactly. I do know this. I. I think it, you hear the number, you, postcards are coming out all over the state saying that anybody that voted for Medicaid expansion voted for, this is an interesting twist, a $1.1 billion spending increase and not one cent goes to food. And what they're talking about is Medicaid expansion. The $1.1 billion is over 10 years. Um, so the, the, the cost is, we had mechanisms to cover that. And I think it's important to note that in the last year, the feds said they would, if you take Medicaid expansion and you haven't done it before, we will pay you extra money just to take it. And it would have actually, the money we could have got from that enticement would have covered 10 years of cost of Medicaid expansion. We, we, and we still didn't do it. As, a, as how much it would have. I, the other thing, talking about, in terms of local taxes though, because I don't have the numbers, but we know that our, our local jails are, if Medicaid expansion was in place, there would be a reduced cost to our local jails because they're 
for a lot of cases, serving as the de facto mental health centers. People are going into them, then they're getting stabilized, we're treating them, then they're getting back out, and then they're destabilizing because they can't afford their medication, they can't get treatment, then they end up back in jail. And we know that th there is a, there's a cost to local communities because we haven't expanded Medicaid. Who else? What was your argument against it? Against, against expanding. Well, the, the one I keep hearing is the able-bodied adult. There's, there, there's an effort to, I mean, to, to be fair, there's a, there's a feeling that it's an entitlement program and we don't want to expand uh, an entitlement program. And the, yeah, and, and that's exactly right. I mean, usually when it's, you know, when it comes up and there's an opponent, they say two things. They say, well, that's an expansion of Obamacare, which brings up, you know, this past that they want to uh, uh, kind of scare people with. The other thing that always comes up is this able-bodied adult. I figured up the numbers here recently. If you're a single mom with two kids, you're somewhere between 15 and $16 an hour at, at 40 hours a week in order to get out of that Medicaid coverage gap. So we, we have between about $8,000 a year is where the qualification level is for Kansas if you have to make below $8,000 a year. And I can't remember what the number is, but it's 138% of the federal poverty level. And when I did the math a couple weeks ago, it comes up to between 15 and $16 an hour. Um, I would say that in most cases, that is a like average paying job in Hutchinson, right? Um, and I get really irritated with the able-bodied adult argument because it's, it's anybody that works at like Quick Shop, uh, any of your favorite restaurants and bars, uh, small businesses that can't afford health insurance. I mean, some studies say that the average cost of employer-sponsored health insurance is about $13,000 a year. So I, in my view, the failure to expand Medicaid, Medicaid expansion is not just a matter of not helping people on the lower end of the, the economic spectrum. It is hurting small business and it's, it's reducing our capacity for growth because there are companies out there that are losing employees in this labor market to bigger companies that can provide health insurance benefits. And I, I mean, I know a guy who had to basically shut down his tree trimming business because he couldn't, he couldn't keep his employees because they're like, I need health insurance. What else? Yes. Yeah. Oh my goodness, yes. Yeah. You want to go on? Uh, to me, that's the biggest loss. If you have heart problems in western Kansas, you're going to be gone before you get help. Yeah, or it's a long yeah. helicopter ride otherwise. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly yeah. right. And that's some of the research that, uh, that, that KU people are looking into. It's just some of these rural hospital and county hospitals have been hanging on by a thread anyway and have, have closed because they, the, we, we should have, you know, could have, should have, uh, like a lot of states, perhaps expanded Medicaid and taken the all but free federal money five, six years ago. Uh, but, but, but no, it's, it's, it's a problem and it's getting worse. I don't know if the political will is there unless the body count changes somewhat um, in the legislature to, to change this. I mean, we heard three, four, five years ago, Senator Denning, who was a Republican from Johnson County, was, you know, had a plan. He was going to bring that plan and boy, it was going to pass the first month of the 2018, 2019 session, whatever this was. Well, I think we're still waiting for this plan because when you get something in the legislature, boy, it can, 
it can bog down in these conference committees at three or four or five o'clock in the morning like we were talking about and it, it things just get stalemated and that issue certainly has on that issue i think i should point out one thing you'll hear too is that well just give us a bill that will work give us a give us a kansas bill we've had a version of medicaid expansion that has had work requirements that hasn't gone anywhere when don heineman was in the house i worked very closely with him and we offered a bill that had premiums in it where we were going to collect premiums very small and modest premiums um, there were a lot of people that were mad at us for even coming up with this but it was idea. A skin in the game kind of thing. But it was to a skin the in the issue. game yeah. kind of idea, and I was willing, along with Don, to try anything to at least get the ball moving on this. And the, the complaint has always been, "Well, it's got to be the Kansas plan." Well, I thought, well, work requirements—that might be one thing. Um, uh, premiums might be another thing. I didn't like the idea of premiums myself, but I recognized that we had to do something to try to get Republicans on board with this. That we, we haven't, and Denning had his plan. Um, there doesn't seem to be a plan that exists that we can get any traction on. Can I make one comment that just shocks me that people don't realize about Medicaid is that if you are somebody that has Alzheimer's or dementia, which is a, me is, is, um, a mental disorder, not physical, and you're under age 65, Without expanded Medicaid, you're not going to get any help or any coverage for your caregivers or anything else like that. And, and what are the it medium and long run social costs physical. of that? I mean, <laughs> as a society, right, the, the medium and long run social costs for, for those kinds of folks and their families not getting any help, it's, we're all going to pay more in the long run. We know this. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, oh, amongst the other 50 states, how prevalent is the idea of a three-legged st uh, stool on revenues? Um, there, there are some states that like this idea. Again, there's others like, okay, Texas likes to beat their chest and say, we don't have an income tax, and, and, and Florida doesn't have an individual income tax. They've just got a corporate income tax, right? And uh, uh, Nevada can get away with no income tax because, of course, they have Las Vegas there, and they get all their money from tourist taxes, right? Uh, so, d depending on your situation, you, you, can, you can set the ball game up differently, right? Let, let's soak the visitors, if you're Colorado, let's have a lot of tourist taxes so we can keep our other income taxes low. Kansas, we don't have that luxury. We don't have a lot of beaches and, and, and that kind of stuff here. So, again, let's think this through. Let's have these tax study commissions and at least the last two major ones under Graves in the 90s and under Kelly here the last three or four years said, no, nah, we, we think this broad-based approach, casting the net widely for a variety of different reasons that provides different kind of equity, it's the way to go. And also, it, if your revenue portfolio is more balanced and diversified and a recession does come, you're going to weather it better. The three-legged stool is sturdier than a one or two-legged stool because Kansas survived 86, 87 much better than Texas did. So there's a, a variety of reasons I think, at least for us, it continues to make sense. And I'm not, I'm not, there's people in both political parties that embraced that for, for 20 years and are now re-embracing it. Not everybody does. And there's still people that want to do surgery on the shortest leg of the stool, the income tax leg, but um, you know, uh, to each their own. I, I had a point that uh, during your presentation I wanted to raise. Can you? Expand a little bit more on both the homestead property tax rebate 
and on what it means when we did away with the refundable portion of the, or, or the ended writers. making, yeah, it, well, and the re rebatable, the refundable part of the oh, food, yeah, okay. food sales the food tax. food sales tax credit. Again, in Kansas, the argument was, uh, we had a former Kansas Republican Senate president from Johnson County named Dick Bond. He, he was a good guy. He was a moderate Republican from Johnson County. And every time the food tax issue would come up back in the 90s, he would say, George Brett and I live in Kansas. And George Brett and I can both afford to pay sales tax on our food. So why should we wipe out 15% of the sales tax base? Let's just keep this credit that we've had on the books since 78. Let's enhance it. So the single moms, the fixed income seniors, the blind and disabled, let's, let's target this money and we don't have to give away 15% of the sales tax base. That logic held for, for, for a number of years. Now, it was refundable. So if you were a single mom with three or four kids and because of earned income tax credit and other kinds of things, you had a low paying job, you didn't owe the state of Kansas any income taxes. If you have a refundable tax credit, you get the difference back. Tax credit 101, if you have $100 of income tax liability and you're entitled to a $300 tax credit, if the credit is refundable, your $100 of liability is wiped out and the state sends you a check for $200. If the credit is instead made non-refundable, the only thing that happens is your $100 of liability is wiped out and you walked away. What happened under Brownback is two-thirds of the program was, the, a lot of the people got no benefit from it because they had no state liability to start with, but they'd spent the whole previous year paying sales tax on their groceries, okay? So that was one problem. The homestead, same kind of thing. The state of Kansas, like a lot of states, we acknowledge that fixed income seniors struggle to pay property taxes, but that cities and counties need the money to pay the lawn keeper to, to mow the lawn at the cemetery. So your property taxes are going to go up, so we have a special property tax circuit breaker program. We're going to pay you back part of your property taxes if you're above age 55 and your income is below a certain level. And that program was on the books, has been since the early 70s in Kansas and a lot of states. Kansas, like most states, let renters participate in that because uh, landlords pass property taxes onto you in the form of rent, okay? So virtually all states that have these programs let renters participate. For reasons that aren't clear, one of the pay-fors in the 2012 tax experiment was we're gonna kick renters out of the property tax program. If they're not a homeowner, they're not entitled to, well, I mean, some of the poorest people can't afford to buy a home, so they're living in apartments, okay? And, and, and so that's an issue, you know, should that issue be on the table if we're looking to in, in improve the progressivity of the ta and help the folks who need it the most? Probably we should think about putting renters back in the property tax uh, homestead program. So that, that's, there's all kinds of issues that have come up while we've been on this wild roller coaster ride the last 10 years, and those are just a couple of them. Does that homestead refund vary according to the value of your um, it's available. The question, I might have you re-ask the question. We're recording, so I want to make sure oh. we have that question recorded. Does the homestead refund amount vary according to the value of your property? There is a cap. I think if your house is worth... It's 350000 It's 350000 We might have raised it to 400000 So long as your house is below 400000 you you get it. Now, if your income is up toward the upper level and depending on how much property taxes you pay, you might just get a little bit back. But refunds are available of up to seven, eight, or nine hundred dollars for the, the folks that don't have much income, and um, uh, they they pay they pay a lot of property taxes. Um, so so and that's been on the books in one form or another since the early 1970s. Uh, and, and a lot of states uh, have those kinds. Of, it's called a circuit breaker mechanism because we don't want to tell cities and counties 
you can't have the money. We acknowledge you got to fix the streets and, and pay somebody to mow the lawn at the cemetery, but, and we don't want to squeeze the balloon. We don't want to tell seniors, like some states have done in their constitution, your senior property taxes are frozen for the rest of your life. Well, that's great for us, but not so great for our children, okay? So rather than squeezing that balloon and just soaking everyone else, we're going to give seniors back part of their property taxes. So, so there's been a lot of thought put into these kinds of programs over the years, but there was major surgery done on them back during the previous administration, and we're trying to undo some of that uh, now. Uh, if Kansas were to pass marijuana uh, laws when making it legal, similar to the states surrounding us, and tax it in a manner similar to the states around us, how much more cash would that add to lengthen the shortest leg of the stool? That's, that's the argument. I remember having this conversation with my dad in the 1980s when Kansas was putting lottery on, right? Uh, that, my dad's like, what the hell's in it for me? And I'm like, dad, it's a tax on somebody else. You're not gonna buy a lottery ticket, right? But because the state's gonna get money from the sale of lottery tickets, uh, they're less likely to raise your other taxes. So you're gonna be a winner here. Uh, I don't know what it is. Colorado, there's medical, there's recreational, and both parties now are talking about medical. I think it will be many years before anything recreational happens, but there's serious money involved here, and Colorado over the last decade has, has made a mint on this. Now, there, there are issues and social issues about the industry and, you know, people and long-range social costs, and you can write a thousand master theses about whether it's a good idea to do this, but at what point is the genie out of the bottle? Again, people in Carbondale, Kansas are driving to Colorado once a month now anyway. So why not at least get some money here in Kansas and, and we can get the, keep their money in state? Gas, hotel, food. Yeah, gas, hotel, and food, yeah. Well, the people that's buying marijuana now got in this state got buy it from an illegal source. My illegal source is also selling harder drugs. This is true. So if we make marijuana legal, you'd put a firewall between marijuana and the harder drugs. Th that's a very important argument and a lot of uh, a, a lot of academics and people make that argument is let's let's keep our, you know, 28-year-olds that had a stressful week at work and want to go home on a Friday night and have a joint with their spouse. Let's keep them away from their local hardcore drug dealer and crime lord, right? Let's, let, let's legalize this. That, that's the argument, and I can't disagree with that. I mean, it's, um, so, I don't know. There's people that do, but um, I, I think it's a valid argument, a valid point you make. Jason may have a different thought on that one, but. No, I, I, I agree with that, yeah. <laughs> we might do one more question. I wondered Wait. if we could bring up the quarter cent sales tax that's going to be on the ballot for the city of Hutchinson to renew this year. Mm -hmm. Well, you want to talk about that? I, I could. Take your mask. Take my mask. <laughs> the, the quarter cent sales tax has been on the books for many, many years. It sunsets every five years if we don't vote to renew it. 47% of the proceeds from that sales tax go for our street and sidewalk repair. 15% goes for property tax reduction. The Cosmosphere gets 33% and Stratica gets 5%. 
because Stratica and the Cosmosphere bring in customers from outside the city to help fund our sales tax entities. They felt like they could share some of those funds with us. And it's very important that we vote yes to renew this, or our property taxes may have to go up to take care of the roads, and the property tax relief won't be there. That's right. So vote yes, November 8th. <laughs> that sounds like you've practiced that a time or two. <laughs> Hang on, I'm going to go to somebody that hasn't asked a question. Did, did you have one, Jeff? I'll do This will be the last one. Then we'll wrap it up. Uh, back back to the uh, sales tax. So it's easy enough to understand if we go to a zero tax on food sales tax, what that gross amount is. But it logically, people of lesser means are going to take that money, go to their small businesses, be able to repair their cars, buy the medications they need, buy school supplies. So when you go through the economic process and looking at the impact uh, what is the impact of the gross versus, and maybe the social impact as well, to no, those that's, that's lesser an excellent, means? excellent point. I, I, I wish I could give you an exact way, but the point you're making is sort of the dynamic scoring argument. Look, if, if you're not collecting so much of this money from people on groceries, they can use it to pay down their, their, their credit card debt, or they can use it to buy their kids an extra pair of jeans for the school year. This money is going to stay in the state, and it's going to bounce around the state through the multiplier effect. And so the cost is going to be less than what just if we don't collect the set. That's the argument that's often made with income taxes. That the people a decade ago that were saying, all these businesses that aren't paying income taxes are going to hire the hell out of people, don't you know? And we're going to create all these jobs, and all this money is going to come crashing in. We're going to have a grand experiment, don't you know? Well, it, it, it didn't work out the way they, they, uh, they, they wanted, but I, I think on sales tax it would um, because a lot of the people that are going to benefit the most are not, income tax cuts went to a lot of people who didn't necessarily hire people here in Kansas. They, they, they just didn't. It went to large corporations that set up LLCs. Uh, real quick story, and I know we got to wrap it up. A former legislator from Johnson County who was Republican and quite conservative was a lobbyist at the time we were passing the 2012 tax cuts. And the bill was working its way through the process and he, he clapped me on the shoulder one day and he said, hey Chris, I think it's great you guys are talking about this income tax package, but I'm really stunned about this exemption for the non-wage business income. He said, let me give you an example. I'm a silent partner in an LLC that owns a, a strip mall over here in Johnson County. He said, if you exempt all taxes on that particular income stream of mine, I'm not going to hire any new people. Hell, I'm more likely to put my wife on an airplane and go to Vegas. I, that money didn't even want to stay in the state of Kansas. Okay, so that's a little bit of a different dynamic than, you know, we're all going to have more money in our pockets if we aren't paying state sales tax on food. I would argue more of that money is going to stay in the state. And if somebody smarter than me can figure out a way to dynamically score different tax cuts, I would suggest a sales tax is going to have more of a booster effect than the income tax cuts of a decade ago did. That's just me. I'm going to wrap it up, but I will say that we have we still have coffins over here. I, my my little seven year old granddaughter worked her her tail off putting these together. So so take them. And she I was really impressed with her uh, efficiency. She figured out a whole system on how to do it quickly. So take a coffin. If, if not for any other reason than just to, to reward Lila's work. Um, um, and we'll mill around a bit, so if you have a couple of additional questions, you want to come talk to us individually, feel free to do that.
I'd like to thank a few of the people who've helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son Mitchell Probst wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast and Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast and Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Assault City Sound Production.